Hi, this is Corey Turner. And along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. We are launching our revival season uh, today, and this is in the lead up to our revival conference. Now, um, revival is not a season, it's not a service, it's not a month, or it's not a night, but we understand that uh, we are to facilitate and to prepare the way for God to move. And so we are posturing ourselves over this month uh, with revival nights starting this Wednesday night. Whatever your plans are, cancel it, come to revival night. If you haven't signed up for revival conference, Yet, repent, register, come and be a part of it. It is going to be awesome. We have dozens of people coming from our Numa Bangkok location to serve and to be a part of conference. We've got people coming from Perth and Hobart, uh, all across wherever we are. Even uh, Pastor Don is preaching today in America and uh, already um, at a church in Minnesota, getting ready to launch Numa San Francisco. Great things are happening, and I just don't want any any of us to miss out. Let's be a part of what God is doing. And uh, prayer meetings start, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Pastor Aaron, is it this Tuesday morning? Tuesday morning, we've got 7.30, 6.30 to 7.30 Zoom prayer. And, uh, and then we've got in person here in the auditorium, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday and Saturday. No, just Tuesday, Wednesday. Thursday. Clearly, I know what's going on. <laughs> Uh, check out the website. It'll give you all the details. Are you ready for the word? Yeah. All right. Let's go to Psalm 85, verse 6. Psalm 85, verse 6. And I just want to read one verse to you. The Lord has put upon my heart for us as we head into this season. The Bible says, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you. I want to speak to you today on the subject, will you not revive us again? Now, for those of you who don't know the history of our church, our church was birthed in a prayer meeting in 1916. In 1916, a man by the name of Seal Greenwood began to gather some fellow believers at his house and what started on a Thursday night went to a Friday night prayer meeting, Saturday night prayer meeting, Sunday night prayer meeting. And for nine years, he hosted and facilitated a prayer meeting at his house. And the power of God began to break out signs and wonders. People began to gather. And they gathered enough money up to purchase an old rifle range, funnily enough, in Sunshine. And they rebranded it the Sunshine Gospel Hall. And the, the Pentecostal revival in this country began in the Sunshine Revival. And from there, so many people started to come to the church and the prayer meetings, people getting filled with the Spirit, that they moved to Paran Town Hall in Chapel Street, just a, a few kilometres away. And within one month, they had totally filled up the Paran Town Hall and couldn't get a permanent uh, lease there. So they found the Richmond Theatre in Bridge Road, just around the corner, stone's throw from us, literally uh, the laneway here backs onto the old Richmond Theatre. And in one Sunday, they raised 
all of the funds necessary, 6,000 pounds to purchase that property and Richmond Temple was born in 1926. There was such a move of God at that time. It was a 1,200-seater. They launched a Bible college, Hello Numa College. Uh, they had up to 1,200 kids uh, on a Sunday in outreach in their kids' ministry. Now, how many know that's a kids' ministry? Their first convention, which is our version of Revival Conference, their first convention, they had night after night with an American evangelist, they had 1,200 packing the place every night. They moved to the Olympia Theatre and they saw up to 5,000 people a night break out. It was a move of God. Signs and wonders, deaf ears opening, blind eyes opening. And this house became the birthplace of the Assemblies of God now the Australian Christian churches, of which there is over a thousand churches and nearly half a million constituents, all of that took place because in 1916, one man got hungry enough for God and said, God, I want to see you move in my generation. All the ingredients for revival are already in this house. Numa was birthed in revival and revival shall be one of the defining characteristics of our church. And so like Isaac did with his father's wells, Abraham, we've got to redig the wells of revival for a new generation. Now, when the monarch butterfly migrates from Mexico to Canada, it takes four generations to actually take that journey and arrive in Canada. And so as one generation of butterflies dies out, the next generation picks up the responsibility to migrate all the way through to their destination. Every single generation must go as far as they can for more of God so that we can pass on the baton of revival to the coming generations if Jesus does not return in our generation. We're only here today because of the labor and the sacrifice and the prayers and the generosity and the, the, the offerings and the evangelism and the leadership of those who have gone before us. We're standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. And Dr. Michael Maiden prophesied three years ago that what took uh, 10 years of previous generation would take one year and what took 50 years would take five years. And so we need to understand that last generation ceiling is actually our platform for what God wants to do in our generation. And we've got to contend for it as best as we can. What is revival? Revival is God's heart made manifest in the earthly realm. It's an awareness of the immersion of God's presence. It's a God consciousness and an awareness of God at work that is beyond the norm. And we see the word revival occurs 15 times in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And then through the Pauline letters, and particularly in the book of Revelation, in the seven churches in Revelation, 
The Spirit of God, through the Apostle John, calls God's people back to reformation, renewal, repentance, revival. All of these words speak of coming back to our first love, coming back and being filled and baptized and immersed in the Holy Spirit and allowing God to revive His people again. Now, the word revive in Hebrew means to be quickened. It means to be made alive, to be restored, to bring back into use after decline. And historically, revival has been preceded by spiritual apathy and moral bankruptcy, firstly in the church and then in the world. The Bible says judgment must always begin with the house of God. We're going to stop judging the world and we're going to begin with us. And not judging in terms of the negative sort of condemnation judging. I mean examining our hearts and repenting of sin and repenting of the false idols in our own lives because there will never be an awakening in the world if there first isn't revival in the church. Awakening in the world happens out of the overflow of revival in God's house. And so to counteract spiritual decline and to create spiritual momentum, God by His Spirit stirs a hunger in His people for revival. Now, I'm a student of revival. The reason I am is because, one, I was born into a movement that was born in revival. But secondly, I'm, I'm hungering for it. I'm looking for it. There's something in me and on me that, that is going to carry and steward a move of God in my generation. And so I study them. And if you study revivals, much of the research into historical revivals center around there's always a beginning and there's always an ending. But this is what I want to say. Revivals don't come from studying textbooks. As much as we are to be students of what God once did, we're actually to study His heart. Because revivals come out of the overflow of an encounter with God's heart. And God's heart is that you and I would move from glory to glory, from strength to strength, from one generation to the next. So praise God, we look back and honor what God did, but that was for that generation. There's a new thing. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I'm making streams in the wasteland and rivers in the desert. God wants to do a new thing in you, in this house, and in our generation. And it begins with us. So Pentecost, what happened on the day of Pentecost, is actually the prototype revival that sets a platform for every other revival. Now, I want you to go with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read from verses 1 to 4. I'm your your revival tour guide today, and and I'm going to take you on a bit of a tour of the Word of the Lord. This is a spiritual safari, and uh, we're going to go to the Word, and we're going to look at different passages of Scripture together to see what we can pick up and learn about revival. (coughs) Acts 2, 1 to 4, the Bible says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, filled the entire house where they were seated, divided tongues as of fire appeared and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here in this passage, a whole lot of things we can learn. Pentecost reveals that revival is a partnership between God's sovereignty and our man's, women's prayerful preparation. 
Those two things are the foundational stones of every move of God throughout the Bible and throughout history. And so the exact moment of the first outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was not dictated by the disciples in the upper room. It was prefaced by them, but it was actually dictated by the providential hand of God. The Bible says in Isaiah 60 verse 22, I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. Often we think delay is not denial, but God knows exactly what time it is in your life. He knows exactly what time it is in the earth. You may look at the world, may look at news and go, oh, it's so bad, and and elements of it are. But let me tell you, God still created this planet. His spirit is still on the earth. He is still building his church. He is still moving, and I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. Not only that, Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, there is a time and a season for every matter under heaven, including revivals and including awakenings. And so in response to the hunger of the disciples in the upper room, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon all flesh. The manifest presence of God, the sound like a mighty rushing wind, divided tongues as of fire, visually, actually, literally revealed themselves to the disciples and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak a heavenly language. The sound of revival is always the language of the Holy Spirit and from there, there is a manifestation of His presence and power across the earth. What revived the disciples eventually rippled out to revive the surrounding streets and neighborhoods of the city of Jerusalem. Isn't it crazy that God in his providential sovereign timing knew that the feast of Pentecost would be the feast that all the surrounding nations and people groups would be in Jerusalem to celebrate the grain harvest, which is what Pentecost is about. And he would pour out his spirit. Wherever there is the spirit, there is harvest. And so he pours out his spirit. And the Bible says, at this sound, the multitude came together. Now you need to understand revival has a sound. We're in worship today. How many of us know there's a sound of revival in the house? The shout of the king is amongst us. there's There's a spiritual tuning fork in the things of the spirit. There's a shifting, there's, a, there's a, a tone of the spirit that you can hear that sound. At this sound, the multitude came together. What began in the upper room spilled out to the surrounding community. And what revives you is supposed to revive people around about us. Yeah. Not only that, but in every move of God, including Pentecost, there is both astonishment and mockery. The Bible says in verse 12 to 13 that they are amazed and perplexed. The logic of man can't really understand the the miracle-working power of heaven and of revival. They were amazed and perplexed, and then because they didn't understand it in the natural man, they began to mock it, saying, you're drunk with much wine, failing to realize that they were drunk of a much higher wine than the fruit of the vine. They're drunk in the Holy Spirit, and there was a heaviness and a weightiness of the Spirit of God that had come upon. It was so felt, it was so visible, they could see it, and those who didn't understand it mocked it. It isn't a real move of God until there's astonishment and mockery. 
And if we want a move of God in our life to be prim and proper, to be neat, controlled and comfortable, you're not accessing, you're not touching, you're not tasting of the real move of God. We've got to be prepared to look like fools in the eyes of the world. See, the paradox is God won't move if we don't pray. It's not that he can't move. He can because he's almighty, he's sovereign, he's powerful. But he chooses to limit his intervention in the natural affairs of humanity according to our intercession, according to our hunger, according to our thirst, according to our appetite. History books tell us at the height of the general awakening, there are several awakenings, but the height of the general awakening, the great awakening of the 19th century, there was a stretch of road between Lincoln, Nebraska and Boston, Massachusetts of 2,000 miles where the sound of prayer could be heard for 2,000 miles in every township, in every village, in every paddock, in every park. That's the equivalent of going from here, Richmond in Melbourne, all the way through to nearly Darwin, over 3,000 kilometres, 2,000 miles. Imagine a move of God, a prayer meeting for 2,000 miles from here, from the south of Australia to the north of Australia. And the the history books record that in that stretch of land where there were prayer meetings, 50,000 souls were saved every week. Will you not revive us again? You've done it once. God, do it again. Our nation needs a move of God. Let me tell you, thank God for those who would apply themselves to public service. We pray for them. We honor them. But let me tell you, Australia's future is more in the hands of a praying church than it is of any leader in this nation in the public sphere. A church, a nation rises and falls based upon the righteousness within it, and it always begins with God's people. Too many believers blame their lack on the sovereignty of God, thinking, well, if God wills it, it'll happen. But listen, God's sovereignty won't do for you what God's Spirit has commissioned your faith and your prayer life to do. Stop waiting for your miracle and get after it. Stop waiting for God to save your family. Are you praying, believing, fasting, hungering, sharing your faith? Stop waiting for signs and wonders to break out and start to take risks of faith in your public life and watch God do things. Jesus said, be it unto you according to your faith. It comes back to your level of fervency, your hunger, your prayer. And so we've got to understand that we've got to offer ourselves freely in the day of God's power. That's what the Bible says in Psalm 110 verse 3. Your people, God's people, will offer themselves freely in the day of your power. Guess what? Today is the day of God's power. Today is the day of salvation. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. God wants to move today. God wants to move in your family today. Wants to move in your business today. Wants to move in his house today. And so God moving is determined by his sovereignty in response to us offering ourselves freely. What's that posture? 
prayer, worship, hunger, appetite, thirst. We've got a posture, not just our hearts, but our practical lives to come into alignment with God's intention for revival. Let me tell you something. Revival never happens on your terms or my terms. God will not move based on your terms, your schedule. When God moves, all of us are going to have to change our schedules. You know, so we get so, you know, uh, particularly those of us more perfectionists and want everything, you know, compartmentalized and neat and nice. And it's good to be organized. It's helpful, very helpful to be organized. But if you want God to move in your life, just put your little schedule away. He's going to mess it up. It's not. God does not move on our terms. You set your sail to the wind of the Spirit and then you adjust where He blows you. It's like we pray, God, move, God, revival. And God's like, are are you really serious about that? Are you really serious about signs and wonders and miraculous? Because if you are, get ready to move. Get ready to adapt. Get ready to adjust. Blessed are the flexible for they shall not be broken. We're going to get a flexible spirit, a flexible heart. I believe one of the greatest skills of our generation is the skill to adapt. And so many of us adapting when it comes to technology or when it comes to work practices, when it comes to what is going on in the world. Maybe it's time we started getting a little bit more adaptable and flexible in the things of the Spirit. Because God's not, you know, your grandmother's God only. He's your God. He wants to move in your life. He wants to move in a new way. He says, sing a new song unto the Lord. There's a new revelation, new thing, new move of God in the earth. And whether or not we're going to be a part of it comes back to us offering ourselves freely in the day of His power. Oh, I'm telling you, I'm having fun up here. Is anyone having fun right now? Thank you, Jesus. You see, revival is given to those who are not satisfied with status quo Christianity. And I I just want to serve an eviction notice to status quo Christianity at Numa Church. I don't dictate what happens in other churches, but I I, I can sort of set a little bit of a pace for what happens in the house of God here. And I can tell you, our leadership team, we're on point. We're there. We're hungry. We're at the pointy end of the stick. We want this. We're not sitting on our blessed assurances. We want the blessing assurance of heaven upon us, not underneath us. We're at the pointy end of this. We are going after, we are going after the move of God and a requires us to repent of, let go of comfortable, apathetic, slumbering, Captain Snooze Christianity. Is anybody with me today? A few of you, the rest of you, you'll catch up by the end, I'm sure. So let's go to Proverbs 27.7, again on a revival tour. Let's go to Proverbs 27.7. Let's read what it says. I love this. One who is full. Ever been really full after a meal, buffet meal, your favorite meal, feel bloated? One who is full. It doesn't matter if they offer you honey. It doesn't matter if they offer you your favorite dessert. One who is full loathes honey. But to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. 
Ever been so hungry, doesn't matter what they serve you? It's like my grandfather would say, if you're hungry, you'll eat anything. And, he's, and then he'd proceed to tell me a World War II story where he didn't eat for 48 hours and, you know, he, he marched for, you know, three weeks without food and, and that was to make me feel guilty to, to eat stale bread or something, you know. And, and it's like, but when you're hungry, you, you're up for anything. Well, if you want revival, if you want something you've never had before, you've got to go somewhere you've never been before. You've got to get hungry because revival is only given to those who are hungry. You know, a status quo believer is content to critique and analyze the move of God, not participate in it. We say, I'm not too sure about that, you know, getting slain in the spirit. You know, someone asks, you know, what do you think about all that getting slain in the spirit? The person responded here in our church, person responded, I love it. It's awesome. Because once you've tasted and seen that God is good, you're not afraid. You just yield yourself and let God do what he wants to do. And so as long as you're full of self and full of the temporal appetites of this world, you can't access supernatural realities. You can't access the things of the spirit. Why? Because your appetite is safe by temporal things, not eternal things. And so we've got to be careful that we don't critique the move of God and judge somebody else's experience just because we haven't seen that in our personal lives. Well, I'm not sure that God really moves that way. Well, well that's just because you haven't seen it. That's it. God's moving that way in somebody else's life. I'm not real sure about that whole laughing thing, you know, in the spirit, but, but I read somewhere the joy of the Lord is your strength. So what happens if someone's been under a, a blanket of depression and misery in their life and God is doing a work of revival and renewal and they just start to break out in laughter? What's that about? It could be God's restoring joy into their heart. Well, 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 I don't know about that screaming and shouting and someone, you know, a demon casting out. That's weird. That, that makes me feel uncomfortable. But Listen, what if someone's been bound in a stronghold all their life, bent over by the circumstances of life because of a stronghold in their mind, their body or their spirit, and the Spirit of God comes by the authority of the name of Jesus and sets them free? I reckon you'd give a shout too. I reckon you'd sort of respond with a little bit of expressive emotion if the Spirit of God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, who brooded over the waters, who said let there be light and there was light I reckon you'd have a little bit of a response too if that same spirit touched you so in the process of a move of God we've got to be careful that we don't use our history or lack of with God to be a measuring stick for other people's history or encounter or experience with God because God can do whatever the flip he wants And it is the height of arrogance to assume that it has to work according to our preconceived boxes and it has to look a certain way and it has to do this. Yes, 1 Corinthians 14 says everything should be done decently and in order, but I'm concerned that the modern church is so decent and in order. We've decently in ordered the Holy Spirit out of the church and he can no longer move the way that he wants to move. So yes, there's decently and in order, but you've got to first of all have the Spirit moving before you can have decently and in order. A lot of decently and in order is just man-made control. Not the moving of the Holy Spirit. 
The Pharisees missed the Messiah. They missed their day of visitation, the Bible says, because in the triumphant entry, as Numa worship went up and we're throwing palm branches and blankets and cloaks down, the Spirit of God is moving. Uh, the Pharisees, the religious establishment said, you know, tell your followers to be quiet. Uh, it's, it's undignified. We don't like what's happening here. It's outside of our realm of experience, comfort and control. And Jesus said, if they are silent, even the rocks themselves will cry out in praise and worship. They missed what God was doing because they were judging how God was moving. You see, it's so important you understand in this day, in this hour, the Spirit spoke to me this week and He said, Son, I am only going to those believers and churches that want me, are hungering for me and will sacrifice for me. He said, much of what my church is doing, I'm not even in. I'm just not in. I'm only going to those houses. I'm only going to those people who actually love me enough with all their heart, soul, strength and mind. You see, I believe this next great revival is a revival of love. This next great revival is a revival of communion. This next great revival is one of intimacy. I so much love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind that you will hunger enough, want enough and sacrifice enough for the Spirit of God to move in your life and in your heart. Matthew 5, 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled. There's a blessing upon your hunger. There's no blessing upon fullness. Full, full of self, full of it. There's other words we could use, full of it. There's no blessing on that. It's a blessing on hunger, appetite. Little hunger, little filling. Big hunger, big filling. You see, revival is unnatural not to hunger for. Once you've tasted and seen that God is good. You can't taste of the heavenly gift and just walk away and go back. In fact, the Bible says if you do, there, there is no second salvation for you. There's no remission or repentance of sins. You better be careful. You and I better be careful how we steward our tasting of the heavenly gift, yeah. our tasting of the glory of God. Do we treat it with an over-familiarity? Or do we treat it with the sense of awe and honour and fear of God that it deserves? Really what are you willing to give up to have more of God? Say, so, well, how does the presence of God work? Well, when you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you're filled with His fullness, but you need to understand that His presence is inexhaustible. His word is inexhaustible in its treasures and its mysteries. You can spend a gazillion lifetimes reading God's word and not come to the end of its treasures and its mysteries and its wonder and its awe. You can be in a million worship services, a million prayer meetings and not come to the end of exhausting the awesome majesty of God's presence. That's why for all eternity... We're going to be in His presence, worshipping Him, living our best life for all eternity. And that is why the, the, the angels and the, the elders, they, when they get a glimpse of the glory of God, throw their crowns down and declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. One glimpse will keep you going for all eternity. And once you get a taste of His goodness, it's unnatural not to hunger for Him. Revival is normal New Testament Christianity. 
It's not an exception. There's only one Christianity. It's called revival. Day of Pentecost is the prototype. And it's the pattern for every other move of God. And so we've got to get comfortable with the mess of revival. Because revival is messy. And it introduces you to new ways of being offended. I'm just filled with encouragement, exhortation. It's in overflow today. What does Proverbs 14.4 say? Let's keep going. Let's turn there. I like to go old school. Anyone like the old school? Get your Bible, bring your Bible to church. If you don't bring your Bible to church, you're probably not reading it at home. It's just, just that, that's for free. That's for free. It's a little takeaway. Whether it's on your phone or some of you have memorized it, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Seriously, let's bring the word to church. In fact, we've got one of our guest speakers coming who's in fear and trepidation because he knows how much we love the word here. And I said, bro, if you don't bring it, the whole front row will just close their Bible and just look at you like, what on earth are you doing? No, it's not about inferior or superior. It's about hunger. So Proverbs 14.4 says this, where there are no oxen, what a great revival verse, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. In other words, if you want abundant crops, if you want harvest, you've got to be prepared for mess. There's never been a move of God in history without mess. I love what John Wesley said. He said, Lord, bring revival without its defects. But if revival can only come with defects, still bring revival. Oh my gosh. I'm like, Lord, in every move of God, there's always a defect. There's always something that's a bit messy. You've got to course correct. The rudder has got to come in. But I tell you, in the midst of that, oh Lord, you're doing your work. You're moving, you're stirring, you're making things happen. In early 2012, I began to pray a dangerous prayer. God, I want to be a kite in your hurricane. And the Lord said, just smiled at me. He said, you got no idea what you're praying. But I love it because you're like a little child who you're naive, you're innocent. You don't know. You're asking your mum and dad for something that you don't know how it's going to affect you, but you're asking for it out of a sincere desire for more of me. God, I want to be a kite in your hurricane. He said, you don't know what you're praying for, but you will. Within weeks, God completely relocated our physical address, our spiritual address, our ministry address. And from one humble Bible college dormitory room took us around the world, ministering to the body of Christ, saw glorious things, miracles, signs and wonders, all because of a childlike request and cry to God, God, I want you to move in my life. What does John 3.8 says? It says, the Holy Spirit moves like the wind where he wills. We cannot tell where he comes from or where he's going. So revivals are like tornadoes. We don't know where they'll begin. We don't know what direction they'll take. And we don't know how long they'll last. And so God has a habit of moving in ways that offends our minds. The logical mind, the rational and reasonable mind will never access the supernatural ways of God. 
That's why Jesus said, I think in Matthew 13, unless you become like a little child, you will not enter, you won't access the treasures of the kingdom of heaven. There is this childlike surrender, childlike faith that you and I have got to come into if we're going to access more of God. And so God will often offend our natural knowledge to reveal what's in our hearts. That's why Jesus said, you've hidden the, 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 the knowledge of God from the wise and intelligent of this age and you've revealed them to little humble children, speaking of the posture of our spirits. Why? Because knowledge is powerful and God doesn't want prideful people to access the power of the kingdom of heaven. So he withholds revelation knowledge from prideful people who will misuse it for their own gain and he gives it to humble Childlike believers. He'll offend our mind to reveal what's in our heart. And what's often in our hearts is man-made control. Every move of God has come to an end over the last 2,000 years in its intensity and fervency because man wanted to start building tents and memorials like the Apostle Peter suggested to Jesus in the transfiguration on Mount Transfiguration. Here's Jesus who appears in transfigured form, I think with Moses and Elijah. And Peter gets a bright idea, clever man-made idea. Let's try and house the move of God in booths. Let's try and contain the move of God. When I read that, the Spirit of God said to me, never interrupt a move of God with man-made ideas. So, so we're starting to step into something, Newman Church. We're starting to dip our foot in the water. We're starting to see God begin to break out. Testimonies of people being healed of cancer are starting to multiply. We're starting to see signs and wonders break out in the church. We've got to be careful we don't interrupt it. We, we sort of maneuver the river of living water according to our agenda. We're going to stay open-fisted, open-handed, and we're going to move with what God is doing. Can I tell you the fruit of the Spirit being uh, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Man-made control is a fruit of our flesh. Is this helping anyone today? And so... Man-made control is always connected to a fear of man, a fear of lack of approval from people. One of the greatest hindrances to God moving more in our life is we're living for the approval of the crowd. Can I tell you, the crowd of your life is wonderful, but it's fickle. One moment, they'll praise you and honour you. The next moment, they'll throw stones at you. You cannot live your life according to the emotions of the crowd. You have to live for the audience and the approval of one. That does not mean we seek to be offensive. That does not mean we seek to be so bizarre and strange and inaccessible that no one around us can relate to us when it comes to how we conduct ourselves and live our life. 
But what it does mean is that we so steward the revelation of God in our lives in how we love people that we ultimately realize that I am not simply just here to serve others according to their opinion or approval of me, but I am to love them according to how God loves them and how God loves me. And if you and I are gonna do that, we actually need the fear of man broken off of us. And I'm praying in this revival season that the fear of people's approval of us will be broken over our lives because as long as we're living according to man-made control, we can't access his revival power, his revival anointing in our lives. If you want more of God, you've got to give up the right to understand how God moves. And one of the stumbling blocks of many people in their walk of faith and even getting saved is they want to control the outcome. They want to know how everything works. Well, I just don't understand how you can believe that the creation theory of an intelligent designer and how this works. I just don't see with all the science uh, and actually science is, a lot, a lot of science is actually just um, catching up with God's word. And, and so, you know, the word prophesied it and science often confirms it, all right? But, but a lot of people stumble because of this arrogant, prideful attitude that says, I must understand it before before I accept it. That's the height of arrogance. Talk to anyone who's ever fallen in love. They can't explain it. You're like, I don't know. Are you just talking for hours? How are you good? How are you good? How are you good? How are you good? You write letters, you pour your heart out. You're like, am I losing my mind? What is going on here? What's happened? You're in love. When you're in love with Jesus, you do some crazy things. You you, you get out of your comfort zone. You, you, you You don't care anymore. Anyone who's truly in love, you know, teenage sweethearts are embarrassing, aren't they? They're all over each other. You're like, you're tempted to say get a bedroom, but they're not married yet and we're Christians. So you're like, no, wait, hands off. Just hang out with friends. Not in my house, I tell you now. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, they don't care. When you're in love, you don't care. Because you just consume with this passion for the person that you're in love with. Well, what about coming back to our first love and our first passion? What did David say? Zeal for your house has consumed me. Jesus, Jesus, what, why are you taking the whip and cleaning out the temple? I mean, are you hangry? What's wrong with you? You're not yourself when you're hungry. What's going on? And Jesus is like zeal, passion. What did he say? My house shall be a house of prayer. Why are we opening up this auditorium during the week for prayer? My house shall be a house of prayer. I want all the zealous ones, the burning ones, the intercessors, the passionate lovers of God's heart. Just cancel things. Come and be in His presence and say, God, in the day of your power, I offer myself freely. Because unless we become like little children, we'll never access the kingdom of heaven. And so... Our stewardship of our hunger for God is the key to increased encounters with God. It comes back to stewardship. Often we're looking for a $100 burning bush Moses moment and we're like, you know, Lord, 
I'll take my sandals off. I'll take my sneakers off. Whatever I've got to do, I, I, I need that burning bush encounter. And the Lord gives you a 50 cent spark. And we despise the day of small things. We despise the day of small encounters, not realizing every burning bush moment begins with a 50 cent spark stewardship. And as you steward that and honor that and make room for God in your life and make margin in your life for the Spirit of God, it compounds with interest. I asked the Lord one time, God, how long do you want me to pray? Feeling very spiritual and religious. I'll do whatever you want. And Jesus said, wrong question. He said, how hungry are you for me? It's not how long, it's how hungry. You say, well, what about my work? What about this? You know, out of the overflow of a a moment of intimacy with God, you can live 24-7 in a state of continual intercession. Everywhere you go, speaking in tongues, under your breath. We, we uh, We witnessed a car accident. A cyclist got hit by a car. Uh, Joe and Kai and I were out there uh, Friday afternoon. Terrible accident. The dude was really shaken up. And, and uh, we went over, tried to look out for him, care for him, call the ambulance. Right there in that moment, I felt that tug of the Spirit on my heart. Pray for him. Pray for him. Oh, I don't know. Even as pastors, oh, I don't know. You know, it's good to know I'm human too. I'm real too. Oh, is it going to look weird? Yep. When you got saved, you walked through the weird door. Stop worrying about being weird to the world and just walk on through to the mansion of God's kingdom and live in the house that God has called you to live in. Stop living for the approval of others. And so I got down on my knee and I put my hand as he's there. He's crying. He's white as a ghost and kept my distance a bit so he wouldn't throw up on me. And I was just, you know, I was just like, but I leaned in and, and I just said, hey, bro, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm a pastor of the church just here. And he goes, oh, you might know my dad. My dad goes to this church. And, and, and I said, can I pray for you? And he said, yes, please. And I began to pray for him. A guy I didn't know the Lord. Right there in that moment, the power of God comes and ministers to him. You see, what's the pattern? The pattern is in private, you cry out to God for more of Him. In public, you take risks of faith to serve others. That's the pattern. In private, I'm crying out to you, God. I'm in the secret place. I need you. I can't live without you. In public, I'm taking risks of faith. You know, I was thinking during worship, it is prime time for the church in this hour. Why? So many people are sick. If ever there was an opportunity, every person I meet sick. And hopefully not too many of you in here, but, but if you are, it's okay because you're in the right place. I say to people, if you're sick, come to the house of God. Come on. Bible says, let the elders anoint you with oil, pray over you, you get well. If you can't, then wherever you are right now, be healed in Jesus' name. But if ever you wanted to evangelize the lost people, now's the time. Sometimes we think, oh, I've got to know the four spiritual laws and I've got to know all my theology. What about if you just say, Hey, could I pray for you? Is that okay if I pray for you? Can I pay for your meal? And pray for you? I just, I'm a Christian and this may seem, I, I just call it, this may feel weird. But that's okay. Can I pray for you? 
And I haven't met one person who is in need who isn't open to prayer. Tell a lie. I met one blind man one time. Literally, true story. He said, no, I want to keep my disability pension. Don't pray for me. (laughs) True, true story. Do you know what I said? You have more faith than most believers. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I said, you got more faith. Believers are like, nah, it doesn't work. The dude is blind. He's like, yep, it's going to work if this dude prays for me. (laughs) Come on, somebody. We're going to take steps of faith. We're going to start to risk it for the biscuit. You gotta, it's no point just crying to God in private, 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 and there's no public demonstration. What's in private has got to break out. Revival always begins here. It begins here and then it ripples out. It breaks out. Comes back to stewardship. Why don't you stand with me? I'd ask that nobody leave the auditorium yet, please. Just stand unless you got to go pray for someone outside. The great revivalist, Jonathan Edwards, of the 18th century, he so stewarded his encounter with God that not only did it cause an awakening in his lifetime, but someone did a study of 150 years post his life of his descendants. They saw the legacy of his stewardship of revival. And the history books tell us that of his lineage, his family line, there were 13 college presidents, 65 college professors, 75 military officers, 80 public servants, 60 authors, 80 doctors, 30 judges, 100 pastors, 100 lawyers, three US senators, and one vice president. In 150 years after his death, because of what he stewarded, it impacted the generations to come. A peer of his, not known to him, on the opposite end of the spectrum, a famous criminal in prison in New York in the penal system there, Max Jukes, they did a same study for 150 years and they discovered 310 people died as paupers. It was 150 criminals, seven murderers, 100 drunks and alcoholics, and 190 prostitutes as a result of the decisions that he had made in his life. Can I tell you today, our stewardship of the presence of God, of the encounter of God in this moment, if Jesus does not return in our generation, will have, not might have, will have impact and will produce a legacy for generations to come. I am so hungry to steward my encounter with God. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died and rose again, conquering sin, Satan and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead, 
and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you're ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.